Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. I think one of the things that concerns me the most in the context of a nation like China is how AI can enable authoritarianism. And there's a case to be made that AI will solve or help to solve some of the central problems of authoritarian regimes, namely centralizing power. And if you look at AI as a tool of surveillance, AI as a tool of facial recognition, then I think that that works against the interests of democracies. And we need to think quite seriously about how do we combat this and take this technology and, and use it for democratic purposes. Who has the lead today, United States, China, somebody else, in the use of AI for national security purposes? I think it probably depends on which part of AI uh, you're thinking about. If you look at image recognition, for example, facial recognition, it seems pretty clear the Chinese are ahead in that area. If you're looking about integrating AI into to other systems, the U.S. has made some pretty big investments in the last couple of years. What about Russia? Are they doing anything in this area that concerns you? There's a, a famous quote from Vladimir Putin where he said about AI, whoever controls this technology will rule the world. So there's, there's probably some directive from the top, but I don't think that we've seen that play out at the level of investment that the United States and China have for, for reasons probably that the uh, that United States and China just have more resources than a nation like Russia. Often I get asked to, to give a talk on AI and blockchain and 5G and quantum all in one. And I think we make a mistake in Washington, D.C. a lot of putting these things in this emerging technology bucket. Yeah. Of that bucket, I think AI stands alone in its importance. I think compared to the other things I just mentioned, AI is far more significant for national security than quantum computing, which is a long way away, blockchain, which is not nearly as useful as people seem to think. Uh, and I think in this sense of the emerging technology bucket, so counting stuff like cyber operations as emerged and already here, right. AI stands alone as the most significant. Ben Buchanan is a professor at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service, where he conducts research on the intersection of technology and statecraft. I recently sat down with Ben to talk about artificial intelligence and national security. We'll be right back with that conversation after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. 
I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Ben, thanks for joining us on Intelligence Matters. It's great to have you. My pleasure. Thank you. I want to start, Ben, by asking what got you interested in this intersection between technology and national security. When I was younger, I thought the coolest thing in the world was technology. And that was all I was interested in. And then 9-11 happened, the Bush administration. How did was, that interest in technology play out? In, in Oh, I like every like every kid. I wanted to make video games. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, to do the dorky stuff. And then 9-11 happened, Bush administration happened, war in Iraq. And I thought, this technology stuff is fun, but it doesn't really matter. So I went hard into international affairs, studied Arabic, forgot about technology. And remarkably, the two fields really came together where international affairs started to be a a domain in which technology really mattered. Not in the sense of video games and the like, but in the sense of cybersecurity, in the sense of artificial intelligence. And it's very fortunate to to see these two things that have been animating my interest for a long time come together in in particularly complex and interesting ways. So post 9-11, you deep dive into international relations and national security, and then you see the importance of technology. How did you get smart on all these all these technologies that are so important. I was a, I was a PhD student uh, when I made this decision to focus again on technology. And the great thing about PhD students is they have a lot of time. So I, I went, uh, <laughs> I, on, in the cybersecurity context, I think I read every single word of every single report put out by private sector companies. And one of the things that's remarkable about cybersecurity is there was just this wealth of information that the private sector was producing on Russian and Chinese and North Korean hackers. And reading these technical reports was my education during the PhD in, in how to think about uh, these fields in this intersection. And eventually in the latter part of the PhD, I started getting very interested in artificial intelligence and thinking about how can artificial intelligence change not just the, the cyber game between nations, but more generally the, the geopolitical game right, between nations. Right. So Ben, there's, there's always been this intersection, right, between technology and national security. If you think about beginnings of warfare, right? Gunpowder and turning a a church bell over and making it a cannon and the Manhattan Project, the launch of Sputnik, um, the U-2 spy plane. There's always been this intersection. Is there something fundamentally different now about that intersection compared to history? Or is it just a matter of degree, do you think? It's probably a matter of degree and it's probably also a matter of pace. And I, I think what's remarkable to me someone who's written on the last 20 years of cyber operations, who's thought about AI, is that the developments are happening very quickly and the developments are also happening in the private sector. I think particularly when you talk about artificial intelligence, a key difference between that and the technologies you mentioned like the Manhattan Project is how much of the truly cutting-edge research is happening not in government labs, but it's happening in private sector companies. So so as you know, I wanted to to have you on to talk about AI and its impact on national security, but I wanted to mention that you have a new book coming out in the next couple of weeks. It's called The Hacker and the State, Cyber Attacks and the New Normal of Geopolitics. 
Can you take just a minute and tell us what the book's about? My goal in writing this was to, to synthesize my thoughts of studying cyber operations for the last 10 years, how and why nations hack each other, and to put it in, in sort of one-stop shopping. Um, so to understand how it is that nations project power, um, what cyber operations are good for, and what hacking can't do. So each it's very narrative. Each chapter is a different story of how nations project power in cyberspace um, from cases we probably know a little bit about, like Stuxnet, to cases that we probably don't know much about uh, at all, or certainly don't know many of the technical details about, um, unless you really go deep in this field already, like the blackouts in Ukraine or like encryption right. backdoors between uh, big nations. Is there a main theme that comes out of it? The, the theme, I think, is that... Uh, too often in international relations scholarship and, and also to some degree in policy, we look at cyber operations like they're nuclear operations. And we look at them like they're these tools for signaling between nations, the kind of signaling that animated the Cold War. And I don't think that's right. I think cyber operations are much more the domain of shaping and nations, mm. rather than, than bluffing at the poker table, they're stealing aces and stacking the deck. Mm -hmm. And they're using these shaping operations well below the threshold of conflict to change the state of play. And I think it's, it's quite interesting. And the scholarship... And maybe to some degree the policy hasn't quite caught up with that. So, Ben, AI, artificial intelligence, maybe the place to start is by asking you, what is it? I think a lot of people don't understand what it is. So, in layman's terms, how would you describe AI? The first thing we need to do when we think about AI is differentiate AI from its cousin, machine learning. And you'll hear both these terms used interchangeably, and they're not quite interchangeable. Machine learning is the current paradigm for AI. We've had other ones in the past, but machine learning uh, it shows the most promise, and that is quite simply using machines to learn from data. And this inverts our, our previous paradigm of computer programming, where we give computers very clear instructions. In machine learning, we tell the machine using an algorithm how to learn, and we give it data from which to learn, and we give it computing power that enables this learning to happen. So the three parts of a, an AI system these days are the algorithm, the data, and the computing power. And we've seen remarkable advances in each of those three parts over the last 10 years or so. And frankly, that's why we're here. That's why we're talking about AI, because in this machine learning paradigm, the data, the algorithm, the computing power have gotten much better and have let us do things that maybe 10 or even five years ago we didn't think were possible. So so is a basic calculator, is that would that be considered AI, a kind of crude form of AI? There's an old joke that once something starts working, we stop calling it AI and start calling it software. So there probably was a time when we thought a calculator would, would be really intelligent. Um, but it certainly doesn't work with machine learning. It doesn't work with this right. modern paradigm of right. giving computers the data and telling them how to learn from that data. Right. A calculator or any kind of basic math computer program is the, the traditional linear model of computing. So give us a, a non a non-national security example of AI? Probably the most famous example is what a company called DeepMind did in 2016 when they beat the world champion at Go. And what's remarkable about Go is how complex it is. This is this Chinese... It's the uh, ancient Asian board game, yeah. yeah. How complex it is relative to other board games. Um, so there are more possible combinations on the Go board than there are atoms in the universe. In fact, there are more possible combinations on the Go board than total atoms if every atom in our universe had a universe of atoms within it. And you add all those up, still more possible combinations on the go board. That's amazing, actually. It's just a remarkable yes. number. Yeah. And what this, what this means is that you can't calculate in go. You have to intuit the right answer because there's so many possibilities you can't calculate through. And I think for a long time we thought this was something that 
only humans could do. Only humans could have this sense of feeling the right answer, intuiting the right answer. And what DeepMind showed in 2016 is that machines can do it too, or at least machines can mimic it. And that was a remarkable success uh, for pushing forward in, in what AI can do. And I think really put this on the map for a lot of people, not least the Asian countries like China that have played Go for 4,000 right, years. Right. So I suppose, Ben, like all technologies, AI has pluses and minuses from a national security perspective. So maybe we can kind of break it into those two and maybe start with the downsides. How can it be used against us? I think one of the things that concerns me the most in the context of a nation like China is how AI can enable authoritarianism. And this is the question I've asked my students on the final exam every single semester, because I think it's so fascinating, which is, will AI benefit democracy more than autocracy? And there's a case to be made that AI will solve or help to solve some of the central problems of authoritarian regimes, namely centralizing power. And if you look at AI as a tool of surveillance, AI as a tool of facial recognition, AI as a tool of essentially enabling a, an ever more aggressive and ever more intrusive police state, then I think that, that works against the interests of democracies. Right. And we need to think quite seriously about how do we combat this and take this technology and, and use it for democratic purposes. You've also written and talked a lot about AI and cyber together. Right? That's right. The link between, can you talk about that? Yeah, so we're starting a project at Georgetown at the Center for Security and Emerging Technology focused on this intersection. And there's a lot of hype, and that's the first thing we need to say. I think there's a lot of hype in Silicon Valley around AI and cyber on defense. But there's also some, some promise there. And one of the questions we're exploring, still in the early stages, is what could AI do for cyber offense? And I, I think... Uh, a vision people often paint is that you'll you'll get to some world in which you've got AI in defense and AI in offense playing this out in cyber operations. Again, there's, there's some hype to that, but there probably are pieces of that that are true. And we're trying to, to sort the signal from the noise on that. And what are we finding so far? It's, it's early days, but I think, if nothing else, putting aside the machine learning piece and looking a little more generally at automation, it's fair to say that some of the most powerful cyber attacks in history have been the ones that have some automated component, that have the capacity to spread themselves or push decision-making to the code. Stuxnet's a well-known example here. Another one less well-known but quite interesting is the 2016 blackout in Ukraine. This is the second blackout that happened in Ukraine in the span of a year. The 2015 blackout was incredibly manual. Mm -hmm. 2016 blackout had much more automation in the code. And one of the questions that we're asking is, what does that mean? What is, how do we interpret this increasing level of automation, um, pushing closer to a, a fire and forget kind of cyber attack where the code could find uh, the configuration of the yeah. industrial control system and attack it without too much guidance? That is, it might be a sign of things to come. And what is, what is the difference between manual, a manual cyber attack look like versus an AI-enabled cyber attack? What's, what's fundamentally different? If you look at the 2015 versus 2016 blackout, in 2015, you had the hackers themselves executing each step. So they'd give a command, the malicious code would execute, they'd give another command. The 2016 blackout was pushing much more towards they would launch the malicious code against the target and they would make some decisions on its own about how the target is configured and how to, to carry out an attack against that target. It's worth saying the 2016 blackout code was not terribly effective. It, it failed in this, in this capability in some key ways, doing less damage than it might otherwise have done. But I think it's a, it might be a sign of things to come, um, which you, you're pushing more decision-making power to the malicious code, 
allowing you to go faster and with fewer loops to human operators. So we see the Russians doing this. Do we see any other nation states trying to link these two together, AI and cyber? I think it's probably fair to say that Russia has a, a high risk tolerance and, and is content to, to be aggressive, and we see the most of Russian activity. Um, I don't think we've seen a lot of public discussion of American activity in this area. It wouldn't surprise me if, if folks in intelligence agencies are thinking about what this could do, not only on the attack side in the case of the United States, but also on the data analysis side. Right. Singles intelligence programs bring back an enormous amount of information. Processing that information is a, a key part of uh, the business of, of folks at NSA and the like. And, and you can imagine AI will help, but this is not something that's widely discussed. Yeah. And you've also written a little bit, and I saw you gave a testimony on, on the link between AI and terrorism, counterterrorism. Can that's you talk right. about that? I think it, where this comes up the most is in two areas. The first is internet moderation, and I think the the view that um, some people have who are a little more techno-utopian than I am that AI will solve the challenges of internet moderation on platforms like Facebook and, and the like. And I'm pretty skeptical. I think the, the, the technology is not near the point where it needs to be to, to judge things like context and the like. The same terrorist video in one context could be a recruiting tool, Another context could be a legitimate news report. One should go down and the other one should stay up on a platform like Facebook. So I was pushing back in that testimony a little bit on the notion that technology is going to solve our counterterrorism problems on the internet. Certainly, I think the second piece of this is how recommendation algorithms and the like on platforms like YouTube and Facebook are essentially governed by AI. They de it determines what you see on the internet. And that's certainly, as you know, far better than I do, a breeding ground for terrorism yeah. and, a, and a recruiting tool. One of the things I hear over and over and over again, and I'm wondering, A, if you do, and, and B, what you think of it, is the potential risks of a link between AI and biotechnology. I think it's a little too soon to say. Um, I don't worry about that as much in the, the terrorism context. You know, In WMD, right, I don't think right. the capability is there. Um, there's interesting work to be done with AI and bio and AI and science. Probably the most promising work is something we saw from DeepMind, again, the same company that did uh, AlphaGo, that's something they called AlphaFold. And this made progress on one of the hardest problems in biotech called the protein folding problem, which we don't need to parse the details of, but it's a problem that essentially relates to how proteins can combine and, and uh, entangle themselves. Um, making progress on this problem is key for drug discovery and the like. Mm -hmm. And I think AlphaFold showed there's some significant progress for AI in the biotech context, away from national security, but just in pure science, to, to advance uh, beyond what humans have been able to do. DeepMind uh, has made a lot of uh, investments in the science area, and in biotech is one of the areas in which they're, they're making progress. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Ben Buchanan. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. So any other kind of big areas of 
AI's impact on national security that you think about that we haven't talked about? Probably the biggest one that, that people talk about is AI and autonomous weapons and the degree to which artificial intelligence should be used in kinetic weapon systems that kill, the degree to which uh, those systems should have the authority to decide on their own to fire, what the role of the human should be. There are deep questions here um, that I think the national security state is only beginning to figure out. And you can imagine that democracies and autocracies would come to different answers on these questions. And are people thinking about this not only here, but also in places like China and Russia? Are those conversations happening? No doubt. And, and Russia has a very long history in particular of trying to push more automation into their systems, even before the modern machine learning paradigm. If you look at some of what Russia's done with their nuclear systems, there's, there's I think, strong hints at, at automation there. China's a little harder to read, but you can imagine that this is something that, that uh, would be you know, of interest to the Chinese leadership, um, particularly if you don't have the strong officer corps the U.S. Yeah. has, if you yeah. don't trust your people in the same way yeah. the U.S. military might, autonomy and control, again, serves the authoritarian purpose. Yeah. And at, at, at this early stage in the discussion, which way do you tend to lead? The best analogy I, I know of is from Paul Charest, who writes about this, and, and he says there's a distinction in how we think about this thing on December 6, 1941, and December 8th. And, and part of me feels like the real question with autonomous weapons is not what do we think about it in the abstract, but mm. when people are actually dying, are there principles here for which we are willing to send American warriors to die? Um, in other words, we will not use autonomy because we believe in, in these principles. That is the much more profound question. You don't often see that much tougher question asked, um, essentially, in a, in a conflict that involves autonomous weapons that are better, which is, again, speculative. Um, would, we be, would we be willing to, to not use those weapons and, and have people die instead? Right. Um, one of the things I like about AI is that how it raises very deep ethical questions as well as hard power national security questions. So let's switch gears a little bit, Ben, if we can. And who has the lead today? United States, China, somebody else, in the use of AI for national security purposes? I think it probably depends on which part of AI uh, you're thinking about. If you look at image recognition, for example, facial recognition, it seems pretty clear the Chinese are ahead in that area. As I said before, there's, there's some domestic reasons why they would pursue that. Um, if you're looking about integrating AI into to other systems, the U.S. has made some pretty big investments in the last couple of years standing up the joint AI center at the Pentagon, uh, for example, spinning up Project Maven. We haven't always seen the results of that. You can imagine they're, they're locked away in places, but that's an area where the U.S., I think, has, has invested more than things like facial recognition for national security. So it depends on the piece of the AI puzzle that you're talking about. And what about Russia? You, are they doing anything in this area that concerns you? There's a, a famous quote from Vladimir Putin where he said about AI, whoever controls this technology will rule the world. So there's there's probably some directive from the top, but I don't think that we've seen that play out at the level of investment uh, that the United States and China have for, for reasons probably that the uh, that United States and China just have more resources than a nation like Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly the Russian interest in autonomy, as I said, goes back quite a while. And, and what skill sets do you as a nation state need to maximize the benefit you can get out of tying these two together? There's two pieces of this. The first is the capacity to develop AI algorithms and software themselves. And the people who can do this, in some sense, are, are like NFL quarterbacks. There's just not enough of them. Mm-hmm. And the demand is really high. And that's 
those people are primarily concentrated in the private sector right now. The second piece of this that's particularly important in national security is integrating this algorithms, these algorithms and these advances into your national security systems. And that's something I think that's overlooked because it's not, it's not flashy, but it's really important. AI is not just magic pixie dust that you sprinkle on something and automatically makes the technology that you're using already better. Integration and design, test and evaluation, those are all key parts of integrating AI into national security. And I think that's going to be where the rubber hits the road for using this technology well. And you would think that the government needs a certain skill set, right, that it might not have today in order to do that. That's right. And and marrying geopolitical sensibilities with technical skill, putting the teams together to do this, these are all hard organizational problems that, that are not really about the technology. They're about scaling uh, integration of the technology into a much broader defense apparatus than than many other applications of AI have to integrate with. So, Ben, what's the the appropriate role of the government here and the private sector? And then most importantly, how do you think about what the appropriate link is between the government and the private sector? The camps are far apart. And uh, we've talked about DeepMind a couple of times today. In the terms of sale for DeepMind to Google was the provision that they would do no defense work. And as a a pretty broad generalization, uh, many AI researchers have cosmopolitan views in which they feel like they're here to work on hard science problems, problems that if solved will benefit everyone, and not so much this hard power competition between nations. There's no better example of this than the the dust up between Google and the Pentagon over Google's work on Project Maven, the the Pentagon's AI project. So the two sides are are pretty far apart. Um, There's certainly a frustration, I think, with some uh, in the tech companies about activities of the intelligence community. Um, in the past, activities of the military in the past. And I don't see a lot of reason for near-term optimism about bridging that gap. Probably it makes sense that for the country, it'd be best if if the two sides could, could reconcile a bit and understand where each is coming from and, and why. But right now, the gap seems to be pretty, pretty, pretty far. It seems like there's... Um seems to me anyway like there's mistrust on both sides for sure right if you're if you're in the tech community you worry about what the government's going to do with your technology and if you're in the government you're looking at these tech companies saying we don't want to work with you because of our concerns about what you're going to do but we are working with the chinese on helping them you know perfect their surveillance state so the government folks are sitting there scratching their heads saying hey what's going on here that's right uh, and I think that, that captures the gap well. It's worth saying not all tech companies feel this way. Amazon has, has been clear and they'll do more government work. Um, but certainly many of the AI engineers that I interact with, especially folks at Google and the like, have this view of that we need to keep ourselves separate from national defense work. Are there any lessons, Ben, to be learned from the relationship between the government and the private sector now on these technologies and the early years of the Cold War, when the government and the private sector came together to to really make some significant advances that enhanced national security? I think the biggest difference and probably the biggest lesson is that in those early years of the Cold War, the government was a very good customer and in many cases the only customer. Companies like Google and the like, tech companies in general, have many other customers that are easier to work with, that have fewer contracting restrictions, um, that are in many cases just a much bigger market. 
So I don't think that for a, a tech company as opposed to a defense contractor, mm. um, there's necessarily economic incentive to contort themselves to, to work with government to say nothing of the trouble it creates with some of their employees. So on the government side, I think there's a realization that the game is actually quite different than the old days of the Cold War and that the U.S. is not the only or the best customer. So Ben, we've talked a lot about AI. Is it the most important technology being developed today as it relates to national security? Or is there something else that's more important? Are there other things that are just as important? How do you think about that? Often I get asked to to give a talk on AI and blockchain and 5G and quantum all in one. And I think we make a mistake in Washington, D.C. a lot of putting these things in this emerging technology bucket. Of that bucket, I think AI stands alone in its importance. I think compared to the other things I just mentioned, AI is far more significant for national security than quantum computing, which is a long way away, blockchain, which is not nearly as useful as people seem to think. Uh, And I think in this sense of the emerging technology bucket, so counting stuff like cyber operations as emerged and already here, AI stands alone as the most significant. And why is that? I think it's, A, the nearest term. Uh, So we see enormous fundamental progress, whether it's things like AlphaGo or um, AlphaFold or, or other key advances. So we know there's, there's something here in a way we're not quite sure of with quantum computing and the like. Uh, and I think it's it's so broad in its application. AI can, can touch many different parts of the national security establishment from intelligence analysis to cyber operations to autonomous weapons that I think there's a lot to study here and, and that's why it's so rewarding to work on this. And is there is it also... Of, of great significance because it impacts all those, potentially impacts all those other areas we talked about? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You said something interesting about blockchain just now, which is that maybe it's not everything is made out to be. I'm a skeptic. Can you explain to people what is it and then why are you a skeptic? One way of thinking about blockchain is just what they'd call technically a distributed ledger. So it's a, it's a high fidelity way of recording information that's pretty transparent. And there's a lot of hype around this. There's a lot of hype around Bitcoin. But relative to uh, what AI can do, it seems to me the the blockchain applications are far more narrow than other technologies, far more questionable on whether or not they actually work, and far less likely to be integrated. You know, you'll hear people talk about how how blockchain will will solve voting and the like, or will increase transparency in voting. I think the less technology we have in voting, the better. I'm I'm a fan on that front of of paper ballots and and going old school. And I, I think. I'm just skeptical of a lot of what people say about how blockchain will change society. Yeah, and then um, I'm really interested in 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 asking you how your students think about all this, how they come at it. Do they come at it the way Google employees might come at it, or do they come at it the way somebody sitting at the Pentagon might come at it, or is it a mix? The great thing about teaching in the Security Studies program at Georgetown is it truly is a mix. So I have students who are for their day jobs at CIA at NSA. And, and they have, I think, some perspectives from that place. And then I have students who are coming out of the tech sector and thinking about national security and, and not doctrinaire and saying none of this matters. They wouldn't be taking my class if they didn't want to touch national security. But I, I love the debates I get to have every Tuesday with students where we, we set up these discussions and, and people will have different views. What's really rewarding is that I think at least the students I see have a sense that this technology is going to matter and have a sense that it's very hard to make good policy or make good strategy without first understanding the technology. And that's something we, we push even in a, a fairly non-technical program. You have to understand the technology to get, to get the right answer on, on strategy. So is there, um, in these classroom discussions with two different 
points of view, do they ultimately come together in a, in a new point of view, or what happens? A, a good classroom discussion ends with uh, each being able to state the other side's argument so well that the other side will say, yeah, I wish I'd put it that way. Mm. There's not always a change of views. People have their perspective, but what I seek is some capacity for fairness and discussion where, where people say, yeah, that captures my views well, and I understand the other side's views as well. And I, I do think ultimately when you're when you're looking at thorny problems like AI and national security, we've got to get to some consensus on on what the facts are, what our opinions are, how they differ. And I wouldn't say every class is perfect, but the nice thing about academia is you have the time and the space to to foster that yeah, kind of conversation. Yeah. All right, so let's, if it's okay, Ben, finish up here by playing a bit of a mind game. I want to ask you to imagine yourself as a historian maybe 50 years from now or 100 years from now, looking back at this time on this issue, what do you think the themes would be 100 years from now looking back? The biggest question is how democracies are going to adapt to this. I think we know what the authoritarian playbook is going to be. It's a question of how well they can integrate the technology and what the technology can do. But the biggest question that remains unresolved is, what will the United States do? What will democracies do? Can we get AI talent to come to our shores, not just for education, but for work? Can we get AI talent to work in national security in a way that's consistent with their principles? Can we get a federal government that's often slow and bureaucratic to embrace this technology? Can we think about what this technology can and can't do in the context of long-range strategic decisions from buying the B-21 bomber to thinking about how we structure and analyze signals intelligence? We're going to make a number of decisions as a country over the next five to ten years in a wide range of national security uh, fora in which this technology is going to be hyped, and we need to sort that hype out from what's real, and we need to, to get that right. And that goes beyond just national security fora. Again, immigration is one of the right. key AI things that, that we could do to improve our competitiveness, bring talent here. And, and I think... How short of talent are we? Everyone's short of talent. And I think the biggest difference is that other nations, including our allies like Canada and Britain and France, have explicitly made pursuing AI talent a strategy. The United States has some very strong advantages in that we educate a lot of the, right. the people. So, right. and, and many of them want to stay, and indeed many of them do stay. Um, but I, this is an area where I think we should, should continue to prioritize um, getting talent to the country. So are you, at the end of the day, optimistic that we're going to, answer all of those, be able to answer all of those questions, or are you more pessimistic? I'm optimistic that we have the chance, and that's not a fait accompli. I'm pessimistic because I think uh, time and again, we've, we've not always made these choices correctly before. I did my PhD in Britain. They're very fond of uh, Winston Churchill's quote, Americans can always be trusted to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. Right. Let's hope that works out here too. Yeah. Ben, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. Great discussion about AI. I also want to remind people again that Ben has a book coming out in a couple of weeks called The Hacker and the State, Cyber Attacks and the New Normal of Geopolitics. Ben, thanks very much. My pleasure. That was Ben Buchanan. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. 
Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.